Ladies and gentlemen, live from the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, it is uh, Mike Erie and Tim Stafford coming at you from the new Olympic sport of Zooming, and um, we are qu quite proficient uh, in that. Everybody's Tim, favorite sport. Tim, there is so much happening in the world. We've got Olympics. We've got Olympic news. We've got um, Andrew Cuomo news. We've got... Um, all sorts of uh, Mars Hill. Are you following along in your decline of Mars Hill still? Yeah, very interesting. Um, yep. And and the big thing I've just got to convey uh, to people is that um, my teenage son and teenage daughter and I just binged on Outer Banks. And um, <laughs> Netflix show... Um, where really some of the best looking people on the planet gather um, uh, to, uh, to solve mysteries, to defy their parents, to wreck the number of cars that are wrecked. Yeah, it's like an Abercrombie and Fitch Scooby-Doo. Yes. Oh, it's so beautiful. And so um, I, I said to my children, it's just an act of sheer parental love. I will, I will watch any series you are interested in. Look at you. And so we went to OBX, baby. And um, so uh, that was kind of the spiritual highlight in the middle of all that huh. uh, craziness. Yeah, sure. Um, I learned some new. I, I learned some new vernacular. I feel like I could probably find some gold if I were let loose in the Bahamas. Um, and um, I don't know. It was good. Have you seen this? Have you seen the first season? I saw the first season. I think it was one of those shows that I watched while grading. Oh, it's, it's not something you have to lock into no, really no. hard. Yeah, no, you get no. So. There, there are so many perfect pairs of lips in that show. There's, <laughs> there's one really sort of weirdly shaped chin in that show. Um, but it's just you know, I, I, I'm like if if. If heaven has angels that look like humans, uh, it's probably this. It, it's it's a combination of, of Blue Lagoon, Miami Vice, <laughs> National Treasure, uh, Amber Crombie and Fitch. National and, Treasure like Nick Cage? Yeah, Nick Cage, Raider, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. So anyway, yeah. um, and I learned the phrase crumble some herb um, right. as a reference to marijuana. So I'm just, uh, I've been invited into that. You know, kind we, of life. My my good friend and I, Matt. He, there's a a bar in town that used to be like a Hell's Angel biker bar when I was growing up, and it's no longer that. It's softened quite a bit. <laughs> um, we were there the other night and uh, just sitting on the back patio, and this guy came out and he was like, "Hey, you guys want to buy some plants?" And we were like, uh, "Like tomato?" And he asked again. And he's like, "Hey, you guys want to buy some plants?" And my friend Matt was like, "Oh, you know, I don't know, like." <laughs> totally assuming that this guy was trying to sell us weed uh, but it turns out he makes these really beautiful little succulent arrangements oh. and he was actually asking if we wanted to buy some plants and we were both just so embarrassed that we automatically assumed when he walked up that he was trying to sell us weed and then later that night like at one in the morning or something we walked outside and he's like hey you guys want to go throw a disc and we we're like again is this a drug reference? <laughs> but he actually wanted to go out in the street and throw the frisbee. Listen, you can't so, walk up to people and say, "Do you want to buy a plant?" Because want to buy some plants and not think that's where we're going. I yeah. mean, that's not all on you. That's that's yeah. uh, that you gotta you gotta come up with a better opening pitch for that. But hey, um, succulents and frisbee, some 
two pretty peaceful yeah nice things yeah but maybe that those are just gateway maybe those are gateway plants they you never be. know you never know tim i need you to cue the music as a palate cleanser right now All right, ladies and gentlemen, today we've got one more interview on the Bible from a guy by the name of Bradley Jersak, who we've had on before. Bonnie and Tim interviewed him earlier this year um, on mm. the subject of hell. Oh, it was last year. And when was it last year? And wouldn't yeah. you know it? There is somehow when the microphone gets turned on, he's playing it cool. He's right somewhere now. It, else. He's the somewhere lack else. Of video is really sad for the for everybody right now because he walked uh, up and was like, "Oh, what? Oh, you talking about me? Oh, 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 oh! This looks like you're having a podcast, Dad. It's like he can be in the total opposite end of the house, and there's some some mysterious tremor in the force where he knows Dad does not want him to come and interrupt." And yet, here it is. So you can hear the little little groans. Hi. Do you want to say hi to everybody? Hey, buddy. Say hi. Hi. I'm Seth. I'm Seth. I'm the best. I'm best. I'm awesome. I love. You want to say hi to Tim? Um, uh, good morning. Um, good morning. Tim Stafford. Um, good morning, Tim Stafford. I'm Charles and Bob. Yeah, Charles, Tim Stafford, Charles, and Bob <laughs> is what you got. So, and, um, Sarah, please. So, so this is how you know Seth is comfortable in church. Hey, Dad. Oh, Dad. you want a drum roll? Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Oh. No. On, um, on music. Oh, for the music? Yes. Mm. All right. Are you going to do the music? All right. Tell Tim. Well, we've already done the music, but we'll do it again. Yeah. All right. Tell Tim. Say, Tim. Tim. Hit the music. Tim, hit the music. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you've got two doses of the music today, ladies and gentlemen. I need to tell a sweet Seth story, though. You, you know Seth is comfortable in church. When after the sermon, the worship team is going to do three songs, Seth walks up after song number one, grabs a microphone, hey, and begins Dad, to proceed Dad, on Dad, stage Dad. to close the service. Hey, yes. I got something for you. What do you got? Well, this is a congratulations song. Oh, you got a congratulations song? Yeah, Voxology podcast. For, for the Voxology podcast. Let's hear, let's hear a congratulations song. No, no, on the screen. You on the screen? Yes. Oh, well, I know. We don't have it on the screen. People can't see the screen, honey bear. Dude. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're done. No. I love you. Yes, you can sit. I mean, he literally, so I let him dismiss the service once on Father's Day. Yeah. So now every time we're there, he comes up, he just grabs, he knows where to stand after the first song. He grabbed, I didn't know what he was doing. He grabbed the microphone, stood off to the stage, waited <laughs> till he was expecting one of the worship leaders to give him a nod and he was going to go up and close the service again. I love that. It was so great. I'm like, bro, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. <laughs> it was tough. It was tough to wait 10 more minutes. I'm telling you that, that right now. Um. Hey, I want to thank sweet Caroline for coming on board 
this week, uh, the Patreon train. And if we were, you know, if we had good voices, well, Tim does. Tim, you had a, you had a concert. You had a show the other night. I did. Well, how was it? I was rusty. It had been a year since I last played. So, did your was your voice cracking at all in the middle uh, of that? Yeah, just like it just did right there. <laughs> Puberty's hard, man. Puberty. I'm telling you what, dude. Yeah. Seth Erie has hit puberty hard, and puberty hard has hit it's hit Seth Erie hard. Let me just tell you that right now. Yes, sir. Oh, are you drinking some water? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so thank you, sweet Caroline. Back to that. Today, we're going to interview Bradley Jerzak. He's uh, got a new book out called A More Christlike Word. And as you'll hear, it's, it's a little similar to the Greg Boyd, uh, Brian Zahn school of how to approach the Bible. But he is such an interesting person and such a great and fun and kind uh, person to interview that, that um, we're looking forward to it. So... Hope you enjoy this, and this will be the, our fourth interview in a row, and then Tim and I, next episode, are going to offer some reflections kind of after this uh, kind of... Maybe some refreshments, too. Some refreshments as well uh, to this marathon of interviews. So uh, anyway, hope you enjoy it. You'll be serious. Hey everybody, we are delighted to be joined in studio, and by in studio we mean via Zoom, um, with a, <laughs> a, a, studio. a guest we have had before, Bradley Jersak. We are delighted that you are with us today. Thank you so very much for being here. It's good to see you again. Well, thank you. Um, and, and just by way of context, uh, we interviewed Bradley. Bonnie and Tim actually interviewed Bradley. Uh, months ago, earlier this year, on the subject of hell, and it was a phenomenal conversation. And so, when we heard that Bradley had a new book coming out called "A More Christlike Word" um, on the Bible, and we're doing a little Bible series, we're like, "Well, this is kind of a no-brainer." So, we're delighted to have the opportunity to talk with you. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit, by way of kind of warming up? What was the inherited culture around the Bible that you received growing up? How yeah, I grew up that? in a I grew up in a conservative Baptist church that would have assumed all sorts of things like the inerrancy of Scripture, infallibility of Scripture, and so on. In that context, I did fall in love with Scripture uh, for a few reasons. One is, you know, I watched how my parents lived it, and I. Mm took my dad's Bible and found all the verses he had highlighted. And uh, when I got my own first Bible, I copied them into mine and I paid attention to what I was reading. I also had sort of a profound experience as, as a child being uh, baptized. Uh, our church didn't normally baptize seven or eight year olds, but I went in and I convinced the pastor that he needed to. And, and, wow. um, wow. and as soon as he did, I felt the illumination of the spirit when I read scripture. I'm not saying I knew it at a deep level, but I noticed that I thought that I understood what I was reading and immediately read all of the book of Acts. As you, do, then, at, as you do at eight, yes. Yeah, it was crazy. And and, and I also noticed the, that what I saw of the church in Acts didn't look a lot like what I saw of the church in my life. So that was 
that was a interesting in in undergoing scripture is it challenging something already right and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so i have to say um my initial experiences of scripture were were positive in that sense it got a little bit weird though when the revivalists started coming through with the hellfire and brimstone armageddon left behind stuff in the yeah. uh, early 70s um and and part of how it went sideways is I bought in, you know, so I bought into the fear and the fear mongering. I bought into the fear for my relatives. And, but I also like, wow, Jesus is probably coming back next week. That's cool. You know, and, and all yeah, of that, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I think was probably a misuse of scripture. So that was my experience <laughs> of the, my first misuses. But you didn't, but you didn't know it was a misuse at the time, right? It was, it was, this is, this seems this, the, they're saying the Bible clearly teaches this, and yeah. it seems you know it seems on the surface anyway to have a, a, a certain logic or appeal to it. Yeah. Or did Here's you? Or, the, or, or did there's you? There's a dark side to that. Is is that you think then that this way of reading is the only faithful way of That's reading? Right. That's right. That's right. So so you have a great experience with the the scriptures. Um, when did you? I mean, were you, as you were in, you know, sort of caught up as was I in the prophecy sort of movement, uh, were you, was there something that wasn't sitting right or were you kind of all in at that point? When did you start sort of waking up to some of the larger, you know, questions around the words you, you know, we both inherited inerrancy, literal, um, infallible. Uh, what was sort of the, the, the event or the process that sort of began to uh, ping away a bit at that? Yeah, so the, I would call it a process. A couple of the high points in that process would have been feeling the incongruency of the character of God as love alongside some of the retributive stuff. And that mm-hmm. was easier to see once I hung out with the Mennonites for 10 years who have a real peace theology. Yeah. Um, another was, you know, towards the end of my master's degree, that dispensationalist thing all fell apart very quickly because I was, I was reading it in the context of a course where we were learning dispensationalism. And then <laughs> I don't even know if this is in the book. I don't think so, but um, there's, we're reading about the, this temple that's supposed to be rebuilt. It's described in Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. What we saw in Ezekiel was that the, the dimensions for that temple weren't fulfilled. So that temple supposedly going to be a millennial temple. So we had the millennialism going along. Yeah. And then it says that, that the Prince of Israel will offer sacrifices in that temple. So I asked my teacher, so like, why are we offering sacrifices after the cross? Hmm. And he's like, well, as memorials, sort of like we do with communion. Right. I'm like, okay. And it says that the Prince of Israel will be the one who's the Prince of Israel in the millennium. It's like Jesus. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, now what's this verse mean? And he will offer sacrifices for the sins of the people and for his own sins. <laughs> and God bless my teacher, uh, Philip Taylor. He said, I don't know. Ooh. And what a good thing to say right then. Yeah. And I would I would say within within months I left behind dispensationalism <laughs> and I you found left, this You left behind left behind. Yes. That's right. And and um 
at the time, you know, George Eldon Ladd's already, but not yet stuff was out. And there was all millennial versions of that out with Walt Key and Regent College in Vancouver, all that. So, so now I was beginning to have a model that, oh, there's different ways of reading, really. And that if you change the way you read, you're not unfaithful. And then this will, of course, later on when I meet Archbishop Lazar in his print shop and mm-hmm. and hear the orthodox way of reading about the cross and it being so much more beautiful to me than what I what I had learned in a sort of transactional retributive theology. I, I, I'm like, OK, is if the early church fathers could read it this way, then I'm probably safe. You know, I still want to be safe. I wanted to be faithful. I want to conserve yeah conservative in that sense so my conservative impulse <clears throat> actually helped me because it called me to go back down to the roots of the church and how the first christians read the bible right so orthodoxy and and, and for some who are not uh, super into sort of the background of christian history there have been you know significant splits along the way but orthodoxy eastern orthodoxy Catholicism and Protestantism are kind of the three big branches with tons of variety in the Protestant branch of that. And so so when we talk about Orthodoxy, we're talking about the Eastern Orthodox, correct? Well, that's, we would say Eastern now, but... Um, yeah, back then it, it was there back was no then Eastern it's all just one church. It's Correct. Orthodox. It is Catholic. It is Christian. It's all the one. Yeah, I mean they had their battles and stuff, but it was one church that was trying to work out these things in house rather than parting company. Yeah, totally. Um, and so the so let's go to the because you were in Bible college. Um, I mean that's how serious you were about this. You were you wrote your master's thesis on. The, the idea of divine violence towards uh, God's son, yeah. um, the appeasement of God's wrath. And so that, that seems like that, that became a focus point for the, some of the greater dis, um, disaffect, uh, uh, disenchantment, maybe is a better word, with the, the traditional reading of the text. Can yeah. you go into that just a little bit? Sure. And even there, like, which tradition, right? So yeah. you get these folks who preach penal substitution as the traditional view, when in right. fact, it's only just 500 years old. Yeah. So, okay, <laughs> um, I would trade it. So what are the ancient traditions on this? And I, I suppose where that started for me is as somebody who is an, you know, I was an apologist for penal substitutionary atonement, wrath appeasement. Yeah. And, um, and then... Again, it was during that 10 years with the Mennonites where we spent so much time in the Gospels, and I began to see alternative readings from some of the Anabaptist authors, and and that began to challenge how I saw the cross. And, and then I had kind of a mystical experience where I was learning contemplative prayer, and as I was listening in prayer one day, I, I will, I'll say it this way. I'm not going to say God told me. I had a thought. But the thought went like this, stop telling people I was punishing my son. That's not Mm -hmm. what was happening. Now, I would never make a major theological shift on having a thought during a prayer. But what it did do is it sent me back to the scriptures. Mm. And 
whereas my previous lenses, let's say Isaiah 53 was all about how God was punishing his son in our place. Now I read Isaiah 53 and suddenly I had eyes to see that it says, you will think he was stricken by God, but it was your sins that put him there. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's actually anticipating and resisting the very idea that it was wrath appeasement. And then I thought, well, okay, I went through all the scriptures on atonement again. And then I started sending emails out to people of across the spectrum of the body of Christ. So to Catholics, Orthodox, Anglicans, conservatives, liberals, charismatic, vineyard. Um, I, and I was thinking, who are the people I really respect at the time, you know, so Arch, uh, Archbishop Lazar, but also like N.T. Wright, Miroslav Wolf from Yale, uh, Richard Rohr, you know, so very an eclectic group that might not even agree with each other on other, but every one of them was started writing me back and just saying, yeah, you're right. There's an alternative to this. Wow. And even people who still like the language of penal substitution um, uh, are, are giving up the idea of wrath appeasement. Hmm. Uh, that wrath appeasement is where you cross the line into formal heresy and you begin to split the Trinity. You become hmm. a tritheist. You think that Jesus, if God had to turn from his son, are we saying Jesus was no longer God? You know, and so some of these ancient errors started being manifest, mm. obviously, to me. How were some of the new readings? What were some of the new readings that were opened up in that season for you? The new old readings. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, especially um, spending time with, with my Orthodox brothers and sisters where you could see in the very, very earliest Christian sermons over and over again, the idea of the victory of Christ on the cross over Satan, sin, and death. And so some people have called that Christus victor, that's Latin for Christ as the victory of Christ or Christ the victor, but and treated it almost like a, like one of the one of the atonement theories, but it's not. It's the actual gospel that was preached, you know, in the sense of it is a biblical metaphor uh, that on the, especially you see it in the gospel of John, that he is enthroned on the cross, mm-hmm. that the cross becomes the judgment seat of Christ. And the judgment is how will you respond? And so we set our own verdict by how we respond to to the one on his throne. So it's it's not like this Zeus-like God now sitting on a throne in in among the pantheon and wherever, mm-hmm. um, but Christ Christ is lifted up onto the cross and revealed there as King, mm-hmm. and um, and especially this idea that He's conquered death now, and which was the consequences of sin, and He's forgiven and cleansed sin, reconciled us to Himself, and. And he says, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. So there's just nowhere in there that the father's punishing the son. It's God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Mm-hmm. How do you, and, and, and I know you treat a little bit of this in the book, but I'd love to go to a couple sentences. How do you take the, you know, God put forward Jesus to satisfy, you know, his justice um, not leaving the sins, you know, committed beforehand unpunished or something like that. How do you take some of those texts in Romans that are appealed to as sort of the preeminent text saying, hey, this, this, was, this was the penalty, Jesus taking the penalty on our behalf as our substitution. 
um, and there seemed to be an element of wrath. Because I'm with you on on how I've come around on those, but I'd love to hear your thoughts around how you interact with with some of the perceived readings in Romans. Yeah, I think the the reason why we perceive those readings differently is is the assumptions you bring to the text. I'll give you an example. If you come to Romans with a forensic lens, forensic meaning legal, mm -hmm. a legal model, a courtroom model, um, uh, then all of the words come through that lens, like the, a word like justice then, mm -hmm. and, that, and that justice is somehow satisfied. Well, how is justice satisfied as well, you know? in a legal model it's it's about it's a it's about punishment and but what if you come to a book like romans with uh with the covenant lens where covenants weren't transactional contracts a covenant was a spousal relationship and this is the model through the old testament the hebrew model for covenant is about it is about our spousal relationship with god and that uh, when when we betray God, uh, how will how will He make things right? How will He reconcile the relationship? Will He mm -hmm. um, and and how will He reconcile His bride back to Himself? And mm -hmm. so Jesus comes along, and um, there's something He does on our behalf. It's not the same as instead of substitution is instead of. What Christ does, he does as humankind. And so the way Romans plays it out is this. That's a, that's a huge, huge yeah. point. No, no, no. That's really big. That is big. That is on behalf of as one of us. As one of us. Yeah. So the picture that Athanasius gives, and this is how he would read Romans, how I would now read Romans, is that, um, that where Adam was the head of the human race, as the head, he turns his head away from God. He turns away from love. Now Christ comes along, and as the new Adam, he it's like a humanity has been given a head transplant, mm. <laughs> and Christ is the new head. And what does Christ do with his head? He turns it back towards the Father. Mm. The Son turning back towards the Father on behalf of humanity is what satisfies the need for justice, which isn't punishment, justice as making things right and so so on behalf of humanity Man, christ so turns us back towards our husband yeah and it's his faithfulness in doing that that does justice to the relationship that's right it restores you know? it yeah 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 and 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 redeems us into the image that you know of what it is to be truly human at that point. yeah and by the way, you know, I, I noticed that all people, you know, most Christians, uh, let's say I grew up as a, I was an Adam universalist. Mm -hmm. That is, I thought Adam screwed That's up right. everybody. Right. Regardless, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, what Romans 5 says is, yeah, as in Adam, now all in Christ. As Adam yeah. screwed up the whole race, how much more, he says three times, has Christ uh, turned things around? Now, hold on. <laughs> Bradley, now hold on. That's just a bit too far. Um, and I'm saying that very playfully. Um, uh, so, so Tim, do you want to in insert anything here? Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up some more. Because from here, as you tell these stories in the book, what happened with your view of, 
uh, penal substitution began to happen with your view of the Bible. Yep. Um, there were, it opened up entirely new ways of approaching the text. And that's kind of one of, it's where I want to go next. But Tim, do you have anything you wanted to throw in or ask at this point? No, I'm interested in, but I don't want to derail where you're going. So I'm going to say no. Well, my friend, I can remember where I was going <laughs> quite, me too, I, quite easily. I am curious about and this is a question we've gotten often is why, why did Jesus have to die? And what role does that play in all of this? Cause. Yep. Yeah. I can, I can answer that fairly succinctly without derailing us. I think it gets us <laughs> on the right track. Um, so that's often asked if Jesus didn't have to die to satisfy the wrath of God through violence and death, then why did he need to die? And that's often asked as a rhetorical question as, well, then there's no point. It's like, right. oh, absolutely not. So I would say it this way. Um, I'll, I'll give you three quick headings. Jesus needed to die because we killed him. You know, when perfect love showed up in the flesh, that's how we reacted. And so there was a necessity in our minds as humanity that, that, um, we required his death because we chose defiance over self-giving love. So that's one. It, in a sense, it's, it's inevitable that when love is in flesh, that's what hateful people do. From God's side, though, this was not a shock or a surprise. And so he had a twofold agenda. The agenda includes um, a definitive revelation on the cross of the nature of God. He needs to show us through our own defiance that God is self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. And that comes into clearest focus at the crucifixion. So there's this revelation of God that we couldn't get another way. So he turns our defiance on its head and, and makes it the, the definitive revelation of what the nature of God as love. And, um, which is remarkable because now when you think of in all of human history on mass, what is the dominant image we have for God? It's a cross. Like that's, that's the number one that's become so, so, and the cross represents this, what I called self-giving radically forgiving co-suffering love, but it's not only a revelation. It is a decisive act. He, that, that, that was required, I won't say by who, I, I think it's, let's say necessity required that he, that he, he is victorious over, and I'll use my Baptist like alliteration here, over <laughs> darkness, dread, and death. Um, darkness being whatever evil is undone, is done in the world, is undone at the cross. Um, dread has to do with fear and all the ways that our fear turns us into violent creatures that are self imploding and 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 death itself and so the early church fathers would would say look at um uh how does how does god conquer death he, by becoming human so that he can enter death 
But when he, so as God, he can't die, but as a human, he can. But wait, the one who dies isn't just a human. He's also God. So it's like the humanity of Christ smuggles the deity, his deity into the grave. Mm-hmm. And when eternal life confronts death, death itself blows up. And this is, this is atonement theology from the early church. So, so again, why did Jesus need to die? Well, because we needed him to die, but also as this revelation of God's love and the decisive victory over Satan, sin, and death would be another way to talk about that. Yeah. Great. See that great Tim. question. See that Tim. That was a great question. <laughs> um, any you want to follow up on that at all, bud? No, I think that's very helpful with a lot of this language and um, conversation about penal substitution or, or wrath or that kind of. As those things start to dissipate out, that's always the first question I hear people is just like, "Well, then why? Then what? What are we doing? What are we saved from or saved to? Or why do we have so much salvific language within something that maybe perhaps we?" are not needing to be saved from what we were told our entire lives we need to be saved from. Yeah. And I think, I think that it's the right question and that we, in fact, we absolutely do need a savior. It's just, we don't need to be saved from God. (laughs) It's God in Christ saving us from Satan, sin and death or darkness, dread and death. And like, um, so to me, it's, it's, it's not to say that, Oh, we didn't need a savior afterwards and the cross is optional. No, absolutely not cross was the means by which God saved us. Mm-hmm. So before we were so rudely interrupted um, <laughs> by that, you know, really pointless it's question. <laughs> no. It's in my job title. No, I, I, cause, cause you know, if, if that, uh, the view of the atonement was sort of the entry point by which, okay, this, this, the sort of greater rumblings about the incongruity between God as portrayed in the Bible versus God as encountered in Jesus, it, it, that became sort of a point where you realized, oh, there, you can read this thing differently. And then, and then you sort of dialogue and detail how that, oh, that could be read differently, began to start applying to the whole of Scripture. I want to get to kind of... Um, that moment or process, and then where where does that leave you now? Because you do recommend a very specific way of coming to the text, sort of most faithfully, and that's what our, I'm trying to set up. But I don't want to I don't want to just miss the work that got you there because sure I think there are people like me who grew up exactly in these words and in these systems of thought um, who uh, are helped greatly by a bit of the journey too. Sure. So one thing I'd want to clarify, I think, at the outset is, it's not that I see the Bible versus Jesus. Oh, no, but no. it's, you know what I mean? You wouldn't, but you wouldn't say it that way. No, but I would say that there is a way to read the Bible that leads us to Jesus. And there's a way to read the Bible that leads us away from Jesus. And Fair so to enough. frame it that way then to, was to say that my literalistic reading of Scripture put me into that conflict because especially when I began taking very seriously um, the, the kind of, let's say, the genocide texts mm-hmm. where it's not just Samuel who thinks that God wants him to 
commit a genocide, including showing no mercy and killing even the babies. It's not just Samuel. It's the narrator also presents it that way. Mm-hmm. And um, from where I was coming from, you had to accept that. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I am I really willing to say that the God revealed in Jesus issued that command? And... And uh, if not, then what do we do with the Bible? It's like, well, uh, fast forward, <laughs> would be uh, we read the Bible the way Jesus did, you know, and, and we don't read it apart from him as our rabbi. But like you say, there's a process to that. So my process was beginning to identify these texts, which were specifically attributing unconscionable evils to God himself. And if you read them literally, you'll end up becoming a Marcionite. Marcion was a heretic in the early church who read these texts literally, noticed that they were unchristlike. So his solution was to toss them mm-hmm. and say, we, this is not the same God as revealed in Jesus. And so these are not Christian scriptures. In fact, he said that of probably half the New Testament too. So the early church grappled with this and they said, you are seeing the problem, but the solution is not to get rid of the Old Testament. The solution is it is to read it through the gospel, that to read it from the end, to read it the Emmaus way where Jesus tells his disciples, this, these books are about me. The, the fulfillment of Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures is my death and resurrection. That's how you read it. So this same, I I wrote the book out of this same problem happening now. So first of all, you've got these, maybe you had um, in the 18th century, you you had liberals beginning to really challenge the Bible because of these very kinds of the texts, because they were still reading it literally themselves. Mm -hmm. So they would would read these awful genocide texts and go, well, how primitive. Um, we reject this text. So then the conservatives came along, and instead of saying, no, you're reading it wrong, they started just doubling down and defending Mm -hmm. the violence of God. Um, So in other words, both the liberals and conservatives were modernist, literalist readers. And they, so they've been in a big, in a big battle ever since. What I'm saying now that I'm seeing among progressives, a lot of the progressives are throwing their Bibles away because, well, look at how vicious and angry God is. I'm like, well, that's because you're still reading it like an evangelical. Hmm. (laughs) So you're still evangelicals, but now you're just, you know, tossing it away. So I'm, I want to appeal to that, a sense of, to my own conservative impulse, which is to say, what do I want to conserve? I don't want to conserve a recent modern literalist, you know, kind of hermeneutic. I want to, I want to read it the way Jesus read it. I want to read it the way. So uh, when I talk about reading the scriptures, the Emmaus way, I believe Jesus taught his disciples to read the old Testament through, through the gospel. And in the second century, we have some of the grand disciples of John, Melito of Sardis and Irenaeus of Lyon. They're both writing books 
telling you how to do it. So these are the guys that actually chose what would be in the New Testament, hmm. telling us how to, how to preach the gospel using the Old Testament instead of setting it aside. That's, that's interesting. I want to pause there. And if I may play the part of the sympathetic devil's advocate, mm -hmm. poorly named, um, <laughs> I would want to say, okay, so here, so here we have like Tremper Longman, Dan Allender, um, in uh, God is a warrior that the, that, that, well, what if it did happen? Why does that threaten your faith any more than anything else? What if it, what if did, if God did command that? Um, and then we get a fuller picture of God in Jesus, but it was a legitimate command. Like how are we not guilty of just having our modern sensibilities offended um, as, you know, culture sort of evolves into a new set of sensibilities and then say, you know, the 1950s. Um, how do we know we're not just doing that? Well, now you're just making me mad. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I mean, so, so. Yeah, I we, guess want, they, we want an agitated Bradley, okay? We've gotten yeah. the nice, pleasant, <laughs> yeah, polite. Yeah. We, want, we, want an, we want agitation. Let's go. Yeah, so, so first of all, um, what the Bible says, I'm going to be Bible guy, because that's, I guess that's what's required in these cases, right? Bible guy says, Jesus is the image of God, mm -hmm. and Jesus is the image of the fullness of the Godhead, not just one part of God or one side of God, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in Jesus in bodily form. And nobody has ever seen God except God, the only son who is in the bosom of the father. He has made him known. Oh, in the past days, we've heard about God through the prophets who encountered him and so on. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. So he, he is God, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, who Hebrews says, is it Hebrews? Uh oh, well, I'll let the biblicist find the reference for me. But as the author of Hebrews says, somewhere it says, ah, Jesus yeah. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God has, God is exactly like Jesus. He's the radiance of God's glory, the express image of his likeness. And he has always been exactly like Jesus. He doesn't change. So when, when uh, someone brings up an Old Testament text where God is violent, so well, that's just Jesus being violent. Hang on. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you. One example would be that first Samuel 15 passage where mm -hmm. Samuel's so incensed that, that Saul has not slaughtered everybody. And Saul wants to have a sacrifice. Uh, um, and, and Samuel's like, no way. I des God desires obedience, not sacrifice. Hmm. Jesus comes along and he says, go read what this means. I want mercy, not sacrifice. So now, did, did God change? Mm -hmm. Or did Jesus correct an image of God? that was bloodthirsty and revealed God as a life giver in himself, mm -hmm. you know? So that's mm -hmm. how I would play some of those out. But what mm -hmm. I'm hearing there is that they've abandoned the doctrine of immutability, 
which is that God doesn't change. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, he changes his ways. Mm, I don't well, know. I always he, heard it framed under progressive revelation. Yeah. That and, and you deal with that. That's what I'm trying to tee you up for is. Yeah, okay. Is, well, now I'm all mad and I can't get back. No, I'm kidding. No, do it. Do it. <laughs> no. So when you, this is exactly right, Michael. Mike. Um, when Thank you. Thank um, when you, I was, I, you know, so progressive revelation sort of said this. As we progress through the Bible, we're getting more revelation. That's right. So what? let's say what we got from the beginning was 100% accurate and true. But it was only one. And now you come to Jesus and you've got 20. You know, we've built right. from one to two up to 20, but nothing will be nothing has changed from 1 to 20 except that we have a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. I would argue for something, well, first of all, any, <laughs> so you go to university and you won't be a Christian by the end of your freshman year because all the professor has to do is show you the, the contradictions between 1 and 20. Hmm. Where it's... Um, like give an example if you would. Um, you know what? I could even give you an example from within the Old Testament. Let's so do it. In in um, Samuel tells a story about David counting as mighty men, and he mm-hmm. says that God tempted David to do it. Right. The chronicler comes along several hundred years later, tells the same story, and says actually yeah, Satan was, tempted yeah. to do him. Okay, yeah. so now is God Satan? Well, in a bigger picture, yes. <laughs> no, God is not Satan. You right. know, and then James one comes along and says, uh, God never tempts anyone. Mm-hmm. It, it and so it's like, so how? What to explain to me the revo- the progressive revelation that said God tempted David and then God never tempts anyone? No, that's a real contradiction, right? Right. So instead of a progressive revelation, what I would call it is a progressive illumination or progressive unveiling, and that is people are describing as best they can how they see God through a lot of veils mm-hmm. that are apparent in the text like nationalism, militarism, violence and conquest. Mm-hmm. And that's and so when they describe God, you are you're seeing God cloaked in those veils, mm-hmm. but as we go through the scriptures, um, those veils begin to become removed. So we realize how we had seen and described God was not true. Mm-hmm. Once mm-hmm. God is unveiled, and so, and again, Jesus does this on a grand scale, but you can see it even within the text where in David's writing in the Psalms, you can see him at times he's clearly a, na- a violent nationalist. And then at some point, you're, you're also then seeing those veils coming off for David, and he sees that God loves the whole world mm-hmm. and that we should not destroy. And you're like, okay, so even in the course of you get these guys like Moses or David or Isaiah where veils are coming off very quickly. But ultimately, we don't get it um, until Jesus is resurrected. And after the resurrection, he goes, okay, Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures, they were pointing to me. Mm -hmm. And by the way, Jesus' takeaway when he says, you know what? Here's my takeaway from all the law and the prophets. Let me sum it up. Love God and love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Well, then what do you do with, like, go kill your neighbor? It's like, mm-hmm. well, we let that go. We let the veil go that had the narrators cornered into that kind of thinking. 
Do you um, think? Do you <clears throat> think that? So that totally makes sense. And you see some of the veils even reintroduced mm. um, since the revelation of Jesus, right? Yeah. Um, and so we're constantly trying to unveil or participate in the unveiling. Yeah. But I. But then I. I worry, or I wonder. I don't worry. I wonder about will. Christians 50 years from now say, well, they were just, you know, they, they were just in the middle of postmodernism, which was deconstructing everything, and, and that will be our veil. How do, we, how do we do the best that we can in, in approaching in an unveiled, as much as we are able manner? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and you've kind of raised something you raised earlier, and that is the possibility that we could we could construct our own theology out of our own cultural shifts and sentiments and all uh, and all of that. Well, first of all, our cultural sentiments right now are not about <laughs> self giving love right. and forgiveness, either on the right or on the left. Yeah. Um, so so. Uh, and certainly not with me. Like my my call to nonviolence doesn't come from my temperament. I'm a violent son of a bitch, and mm. I I would likely be you know I would have aspirations of being a serial killer if it weren't for repenting before Jesus. Like so, the violence fantasies that formed in me as a little as a bullied child. Mm. That's that's not where I'm getting my idea of non you know a nonviolent God. My, mine is I'm hearing Jesus confront me directly on that and say you need to lay down your sword and follow me, son, or else you're you know yeah and and even the grandiosity and bravado around those kind of fantasies where really likely you just go get killed on your first hit or something. <laughs> you know it's so naive the the naivety of violence and. Yeah. And even and then on the left right now, where it's um, where where forgiveness is treated as complicity with evil. So how mm. dare you forgive people? Don't mm. do that. And and I just so I'm not too worried that we're going to follow the culture, yeah. uh, or that 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 will follow the culture into grace. No, yeah. that culture is not into that. So anyway, um, then what's Good. our best practices? Yeah, I would I would be I would say like continually looking at Jesus, saturating ourselves in the Gospels, repeatedly asking how the Sermon on the Mount is challenging me to live. Mm. And um, one practice I have is I pray, I pray the Beatitudes uh, every day for well, probably a decade now. Mm. And what th that does is it installs a powerful furnace of discernment into you. Mm. So let's say, so, so I get these charismatics who, you know, I don't, I'm, I would be a small C charismatic, but some of them are like, they're so on fire to give you a prophetic word. And they come to me and they'll say, uh, the Lord would say, you're going to be a leader of nations and he will, and, and the nations will, you know, be your footstool and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, A, <laughs> that's a prophecy in Psalm 2 about Jesus. Learn your Bible. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, B, that's pretty grandiose. I'll be a leader of nations, hey? Like, so yeah. not even just the prime minister of Canada. I'll have to also be probably the president of the United States. And maybe, that's what I'm thinking. And, and, but now you load, you load a grandiose like word like that into the furnace of the Beatitudes. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs mm. is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. I mean, it's sizzle, right? All yeah. of the, all, all that goes and, away. Um, and I think a lot of false teaching goes away. Um, a mm. lot of when I, I let's say, um, justifying divine violence as a way to justify our own aspirations to mm. be the agents of that vengeful god that that gets fried up in the beatitudes and so i'm i'm a big fan of reading and memorizing the red letters and just and not standing over them as imposing my will on them but undergoing them and like reading the reading jesus words until you get to a section where he bothers you mm-hmm. and then and then at that point, what I do is I say, okay, I've got the Jesus in my heart and I've got the Jesus in the four gospels. They should be in alignment. Hmm. When they're not in alignment, I need to check two things. Do I have a distorted Jesus in the gospels because of my bad hermeneutics? Or do I have a distorted Jesus in my heart because of my projections? Mm-hmm. It could be either now we're going to do the hard work in the company of people I trust and mentors who aren't afraid to tell me I'm out to lunch, you know? Yeah. So that's some things I do. That's great. That's really, really good. Tim, any last questions or thoughts, my friend? Can I ask a question about veils? Yes. Um, I'm trying to filter through questions that I've heard or that people have thrown up uh, around um, I'm trying to figure out how to frame this. It was like difficulty of understanding God's um, narrative or what he's trying to accomplish. And so with these veils that have to be removed to see God fully or to understand, are those veils intentional on God's part? Are those veils things that people have constructed throughout time as we have tried to adapt the narrative into our own uh, understandings or our own, does that, yeah, are, no, it, are I, these veils things that we have built over time that have to be continually <laughs> taken down that God is more clear than we have experienced or are those veils things that God has put there that we have to participate in trying to seek out to find revelation? I, I, sus- I do suspect it's more about we've erected the veils our culturally, our ego and the world system that hates love, um, that, that that's, and so when I, th- maybe we could think of other ones, but when I'm thinking of veils, I'm like, God didn't create nationalism or militarism or right. uh, egoism. And so, and, and like Mike was saying, we even, even once Christ had, um, revealed himself in all these beautiful ways, we still have a habit of re-erecting them. Yeah. But um, the spiritual work of dismantling them isn't just a matter of sort of uh, deconstructionist doubts. <laughs> it's, it's a work of the Spirit. And so um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 said, talks about the Holy Spirit helping us with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 Anyone who looks to the Lord, that's Jesus, who like focuses on Christ and him crucified and risen, anyone who looks to the Lord, the veils are removed. Mm. And so 
Um, but if you try to if you try to marry, let's say Jesus, the Jesus way, with uh, nationalist agendas, um, the, the veil seems to just start clouding our hearts. So even people that I might have trusted as Christian teachers ten years ago have lost their minds now mm-hmm. because they politicized um, the faith, and now. Here's an actual uh, a statistic from a friend of mine who is is going through. He's on a church tour, and I I don't remember how many people he's interviewed on this, but let's say it's fourteen hundred or something. And he goes to churches that are both on the on the right and the left ideologically, mm-hmm. and he presents the basic idea: Sermon on the Mount, first chapter, love your enemies, enemy love. You don't kill your enemies. You you love them, bless them, and pray for them. On the right, I think it was something like 74% of conservative Christians said that that was compromising with sin. Hmm. And on the left, it was 72% said it was complicity with injustice. So now we've got right and left, over 70% of people who call themselves Christians renounce the very words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as the essence of taking up your cross and following me. In other Mm -hmm. words, we will not follow him. We will proceed with our agenda, attach his name to it where it's helpful. But when given an like straightforward um, teaching of Jesus on something central to his, his kingdom, this is how the kingdom comes. It's like, no, thank you. I want my king. So right. that's what I mean by veils and how the even Christians have re-erected them. And it's a real, it's a real crisis right now. Yeah. Boy, no kidding. That is such a great example, man. Bradley, thank you for this. Um, I've read, I, I've got them all um, and I've read most of them. And so a more Christ-like way was the one that, you know, kind of lit me up and got me onto your work. And so um, if you're interested, check out his book, uh, A More Christ-Like Word. And um, he fleshes out what, what he's referring to as the Emmaus way of reading the text, which, you know, Jesus did seem kind of indicate, did seem to kind of indicate. Um, and, uh, and where else can people find you online? Um, I'm at bradjersak.com. And if you look for Brad or Bradley Jersak, you'll probably find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Perfect, man. Thanks for your time. We deeply appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be with you. It's always stimulating with you guys. I'll go let my adrenaline <laughs> rush go away now. <laughs> no, it was actually super enjoyable. I enjoy your company. So, Timothy, I mean, we really, really need you to stop interrupting. Um, uh, with great questions. That is Becoming just... a habit. And, and it's so funny because uh, the minute we got done, uh, Bradley was like, hey, Tim, you need to stop being so reluctant to ask really good questions. <laughs> so I think we are all voting for well, more I just, Tim. Well, I'm always, I'm always worried about if you are leading somewhere, I don't want to derail. So mm. but well, it, was, I, it, it was interesting because no, yesterday I, was, I went and saw the Green Knight movie. Oh, was that good? It's fantastic. And Sweet. Um, you know, most people are probably familiar with the Sir Guy and the Green Knight. We read it at some point, probably in high school or college, I would think most people, but it really put me in like a, 
kind of barreling through thinking about violence because you'll watch whenever you watch a movie that's in a medieval time period war and famine and plague like it's just like always so gnarly yeah and i always wonder what god thinks about when he sees us just massacring each other yeah and i don't get the i don't get the vision that he's just like yeah this is my this is my jam like please go continue to wipe each other out so the stuff that um bradley was saying was really helpful for me i i want to ask a question about so when i asked the question about um not the veils what was the first question i asked um the other ways of why did jesus have to die yes other ways about, of answering that question that little question yeah. um i was just sitting and thinking about jesus in the garden yesterday and just like i felt like i was like on a tumble like i feel like we could spend a whole series on just that because i'm yeah. so there's such an interesting thing happening there with jesus seemingly asking for this not to play out the way it's going to play out and yeah how like there the tension of that little scene is that i'm like i'm kind of stuck there right now and so when yeah. i'm thinking about why jesus had to die and lieu of these larger conversations about God's intent in our new creation series mm-hmm. and and the mm-hmm. narrative and our vocation and calling as people through this Bible series. Uh, getting stuck there has been just a continual thing, like just being like, what what was that wrestling in that moment? Like, yeah, I it, I'm so I'm just tumbling. Like I feel like I'm just literally in the dryer, tumbling in one spot right now, trying to reconcile that divine and human like thing that's happening in that moment yeah and how jesus is relating to the idea of having to die or to go through this thing and but how jesus as god is i don't know it's messy and very confusing absolutely that's all yeah that's all that's just the light that's a light light topic. <laughs> and I and I think I actually think that's a great thing to explore because um if you answer that question, then there are a whole bunch of other questions answered in it. Hmm. Um and, and and so for me I always go back to what what problem or problems is being addressed by the life, resurrection, and you know, death of Jesus. Yeah. Um, and until those are sorted out properly, um, you're gonna get you're gonna get that whole narrative incorrect. And so um, the 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 metaphor that he used, or the picture that he used of a head transplant, that that's actually that's got some good theology to it. Um, uh, and, and again, it's so funny because, I, I mean, we're, we're talking to people who are so much smarter than us. <laughs> and there the, are the, the, these little pieces where I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I buy that. Um, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. ah, wow, I, I think death is one of the powers in the principalities. I don't think he's, he's defeating fear um, or dread. Um, I think Hebrews hints at the idea that, that Jesus deals with the fear associated with death. But death is a power, um, and um, and Jesus had to disarm it uh, by and, and evil, right? I mean, he 
he surrenders to the, the partnership of the powers and the people. Um, and uh, they work in concert against Jesus. But so there, how do you, there's when a, you, when you, when you just said that, how do you picture that? Like when you say death as a power that Jesus had to defeat or whatever, how, how do you see that? Like, what does that mean to you in your head when you say that? Okay. Like dumb um, it down for me all the way to like every man level. What, what does that mean to you? Well, I will speak hesitantly here. Um, so remember when we talked about the inevitable, the, the, the air that old creation breathes is wrath. Yes. Okay. Which, which is the self-consumptive destruction of everything that's part of old creation. Old creation, this present world and all that's of it is passing away. Okay. A word for the energy of that entropy is death. Right, the, the movement towards destruction, right? That, that energy, um, Paul seems to, to label as a power of chaos. Now, I, I can't imagine that it's a personified power. Something Grim Reaper walking around. Right. So I, I, I picture it like I picture wrath, which is the, the, the b- wrath and death go together. Um, and sin and wrath and death go together. So the wages of sin is death. I mean, that's literally the air. That's, so if you, are, if you are in the capsule of the space shuttle, you're breathing oxygen. But the minute you are exposed to anything outside of that, that vacuum of space, right? You're, you're gone. You are gone unless you have some sort of artificial mechanism. That's just the nature of the vacuum, right? There's yeah. nothing yeah. there. And so um, through N.T. Wright, Gombus, McKnight, um, I'm, I'm reading some, um, uh, Gombus has talked about uh, uh, Bruce Longnecker, so I'm reading some of Bruce's mm-hmm. stuff. That wrath is, it, it's not a person, it's not a spiteful Jesus or God up there hitting a button that says punish. It is simply what has been let into God's good world through the disobedience of, of the powers and the persons. So as that new creation dynamic with what you, uh, what we shared with people, your, your, um, little yes, infographic it's, it's of the those space shuttle. It's, yes. It's the space shuttle where we breathe the air of new creation. And I Gombas way long ago on the podcast talked about, that moment being the moment that sin and death enter the cosmos as like a, and he, and he, he doesn't say it in a, like a personified way, but we were visualizing it in a personified way that those things came in when that break happens. Right. And so now I'm trying to like, I'm trying to give yeah, some there, flesh and blood. To all I don't this have, to, I don't have an every man. I mean, I'm still working it. Yeah. I'm still working it myself. But I think of it as like rust in a uh on a car or it, it's not a it, it's less. Now there are times where God can ex, can exercise judgment instantaneously like Ananias and Sapphira. You mm-hmm. know, or 
um, you know, um, when, when the leaders, when a couple of leaders, Korah, uh, I believe, um, questions um, Moses and Aaron's leadership and the ground swallows you know, them up. Uh, there, there do seem to be times when God, you know, seems to exercise judgment. But the predominant picture we get is of an atmosphere that exists that unless there's a born againing <laughs> that, that we're just born into and the momentum of human history carries us towards, that is characterized by wrath. Yeah. And, um, and ultimately, it's disappearing, so it's characterized by death. It's being destroyed. It consumes itself. So it ceases to e- existing. And, um, and so when I read the wages of sin is death, I don't read that as God on a throne saying, hey, I've looked at your record. You deserve death. I look at that as the inevitable consequence of being a part of the uh, old creation and this mm-hmm. present age. Everything is disappearing that's part of the old creation. Now, the question that Brad hinted at is, well, do, does God somehow exercise in and through Jesus um, new creation to the point where even those not you know, consciously connected to Jesus are a part of that too? Yeah. Or is there, a, is there a, a point where you simply say, no, I'd rather be a part of the old age? Um, I, I kind of, I'm not a universalist. I think Jesus was warning us about something that, that has pretty significant consequences. But it's an interesting question because you have all these categories of people who've never heard of Jesus or read a Bible or were, painted, were given a picture of Jesus that is just, you know, abhorrent. Yeah. Um, or people who are um, specially abled or like, you know, sweet Seth, he's never going to get the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. And we all instinctively go, yeah, but man, the God revealed in Jesus would, you know, kind of welcome those people. Right. So, so for me, why did Jesus have to die? Because he was, he was standing in judgment over this present age. And this present age, the, the, the principalities and powers at work in this present age, violence, revenge, retribution, hatred, wrath, death, sin. Like, what does it mean that he became sin? It doesn't yeah. mean that God sat up there and said, okay, here's this big bank account of everyone's sin. I'm going to transfer to Jesus. And I'm going to transfer from Jesus' bank account all of this righteousness. Like, right. that's, how, that's the picture I got. Yeah. No, he became sin. What's that mean? And, and uh, Jerzak has this, uh, he quotes somebody else that talks about how the wounds of Jesus were the entry point of sin and death into his mortal body so that through his immortal nature, he could conquer them. Yeah. Um, and then through his resurrection, open up the new creation space uh, that we all thought was going to happen at once, but as it turns out, is going to happen um, over time. Yeah. So why did Jesus have to die? Because he, uh, he had to judge the powers. And, right. and, and he judged the powers by allowing them their worst yeah. and uh, having victory over them at their worst. Yeah. So interesting. I mean, I, I just talk with people so often that are still struggling with the why, why am I so wretched? Why am I so disgusting? 
why am I being presented with that language consistently? Uh, and that I need to be cleansed and saved by Jesus because I am such a piece of shit. And that <laughs> is like, I'm not, I don't get that from this text or this conversation or whatever. I see, I, I, I see, I see what you just said. So I, there's something about, um, an old way of thinking. And I don't know if it's just a, I don't know where the roots of it are, but I mean, it makes sense when you're selling fire insurance, like we've talked about before to just yeah. make sure that everyone thinks that they're on fire. Yeah. Um, it keeps you coming back for more easy to monetize, easy to scare people. Yeah. But it also, and, and this is the biggest judgment of that system is that system is based on the old creation way of doing things. It's totally. all based on wrath, sin, and death understood as yep. human retribution, hu I mean, human justice. And, um, and so whether or not you buy this, the, the, the biggest point that we want to make out of it is that these are biblical conversations. These are, these are not conversations where we're not taking the Bible seriously. Totally. We're taking the Bible absolutely seriously. <clears throat> and one of the things, Jerzak, one of the things that he illustrates is how, you know, the, the, what he calls kind of the modernist literalistic reading um, of the Bible sort of gets in the way Mm. of actually having a high view of the Bible. Totally. Um, and so what I want to explore a bit, you know, for, for you and I, is I want to flesh that out without all the big words. Yes, I think that'd be um, great. Because uh, I, I do think there is a way to have anchors in saying this is trustworthy and this is one of the ways Christ has authority in my life. Yeah, I think that would be super helpful. And then, I, and go ahead. I just want people to be encouraged by like these last, these last few Bible things, because you know, as you follow these accounts, uh, uh, accounts I mean by like social media accounts uh, and that kind of stuff, like of people that are going through deconstruction or whatever you want to call it. Um, there is a sense of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and there is a sense of like, I'm in free fall. So I'm going to abandon yeah. all of this. Yeah. And I, and I, and I feel like I've been learning so much more, just how much bigger. I love these, these conversations about that we had with like Josh about authority yeah, and what that means. And then inerrancy and how we've just been so black and white with inerrancy. Like it's either this is all perfect and literal or, or, all of it's out yeah and and broadening and giving three-dimensional bodies yeah. to all of these things has, for me has been great and i want people to feel encouraged to be able to be like yep i want to re-engage with the bible i want to do it yes. right i want to yes. see what yes it is that god's intent was for all of this and and be encouraged that 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 that's in there and that that is part of it and that is available and not yeah. just like it's not just some bastardized version that you were handed growing up. That's like, right. We can let that go. Together. And Jerzak's view is becoming increasingly popular. It's literally Jesus. It's these steps. Jesus is the fullest revelation of God, not anything else. Yeah. If there's anything in the Bible that doesn't look like Jesus, we can disregard it. Yeah. Because Jesus is the full revelation. 
that'll be a good place if we do the if the next episode is us kind of uh picking through all these yeah i think that'll be an interesting place to park for a little bit is exactly that i think there's some some digging to do that'll make that um more relatable or more approachable and right right might give some light to other questions yeah. Yeah, love it. Love it, buddy. Yeah, no no shortage of conversation topics here, no, as seriously. always. So yes, Tim, endless supplies of conversation. It's interesting this. if you think about how long the podcast has been going. It's so encouraging that there's still so much to talk about. You know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. so big and vast and interesting and wonderful. And it's, it's, it's encouraging just that there is that much to talk about. And it's fun to kind of see how we've progressed and we've totally learned i mean i've i um i've been so inspired uh by so much of this so anyway friends um thank you thank you as always for just allowing us the great honor of being a part of your life uh we don't take that lightly at all and um and so uh let's do our blessing together may the lord bless you and keep you May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, please give us peace, Protect, particularly to the good-looking kids who live in the Bahamas and the Outer <laughs> Banks. They, they desperately need you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on instagram at voxology thank you thank you thank you for walking the long road with us